Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Primate Cast. We're your hosts, Andrew McIntosh and Chris Martin. And today we're finally wrapping up our series of five podcasts from the IIAS conference in Kyoto. And uh, today we're going to be joined by Dr. Cricket Sands, who's assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, we're going to be talking with Cricket today mainly about her research in the Guogogo Triangle in Northern Republic of Congo which is a really interesting site for a number of reasons, like the fact that it's relatively new for the study of great apes, mainly focusing on chimpanzees, but in the near future, hopefully we'll see more about the gorillas in the area as well. And a bunch of other primate species as well. She mentioned there's a lot in the in the forests. And that the forests are kind of relatively untouched. Right. So I mean, it's uh, it's kind of a contrast from other parts of Africa with chimpanzees, because in West Africa, the chimpanzees are very fragmented and there's a lot of interaction with the hu- neighboring humans and similar in East Africa. So Congo is a very fascinating place. It is indeed. And I think one of the interesting things about that area is that when researchers first went in there, they're really amazed at how the chimpanzees' reaction to what to humans, which may have been like some of the first times that they've ever uh, encountered them. So like kind of a lack of fear, I think, was, was kind of interesting. And Actually, in next week's, or next week, sorry, the next podcast that we put out here will be with uh, Tomo Nishihara, who works for the Wildlife Conservation Society in Africa, in Central Africa. And he also talks about that as well, how mm-hmm. seeing these chimpanzees with no fears of humans is a really interesting experience. But um, Cricket, along with her co-PI at the site and uh, fellow conservationist and husband, David Morgan, have really been doing excellent work on the conservation front in the area. So we'd like to congratulate them for the hard work they've put in and uh, the results that they've been able to to achieve and hopefully expand in the near future as well. On the research front, we'll be talking with Cricket about her work in complex tool traditions in chimpanzees. And what's interesting, aside from the topic itself, about that is how they've been able to collect those data. Right. Uh, we're big fans of technology in the Primate Cast, and She's using a very technologically advanced approach <laughs> uh, field methodology. She uses camera traps. And actually, that ties really well into the conservation issue because if you have camera traps collecting your data, you don't have to habituate chimps and put them at risk of disease transmission. Absolutely. I think it, it really is a win-win in that front. In addition to being able to get a large amount of data from a number of different sites in the population, and uh, what's interesting is that they've been focusing their camera traps on termite mounds specifically so that they can get really detailed and long-term observations of the, the tool use behaviors in those chimpanzees. And as a result, they've been able to find some new combinations of tool use uh, styles, types, new tools being constructed and you know, really adding to the kind of diverse repertoire of, of chimpanzee tools that have been sa- uh, found to date. You so, can watch uh, videos of this as well, can't you? Yeah, internet. right, right. At uh, You can go to congoapes.org, and you'll see there's a section for chimp cam. So you can watch the videos of those chimpanzees using their tools in novel ways, as well as find uh, other information on the site about their research topic and ways in which you could help. So with that, uh, we'd like to start our interview. Okay. You have a relatively new field site, the Gulogo, can you pronounce it for me? Gulogo Triangle. Gulogo Triangle. That's right. Um, So could you take us through the history of your site and and your role in kind of putting it all together? Fair enough. Uh, The New Abalindoki National Park was created uh, in the early 1990s. And part of the reason that national park was created was because of the unique forests in the Gulogo Triangle and the eight populations there. Uh, People had talked about 
populations of uh, chimpanzees and gorillas that acted like they'd never seen humans before and big intact tracts of forests. And so the New Balindoki National Park was created, but just north of the Gulago Triangle, this area was actually excluded and uh, was slated for logging. And so this really rich uh, area was going to be degraded. And so at the very last minute, they sent in uh, David Morgan to do some surveys of the apes and document these unique behaviors. And so he went in hoping to be able to get some data to lobby for the protection of the area. And that was in 1999. So it took us 13 years, <laughs> but actually this year in 2012, the area was annexed officially to the Nuba Indoki National Park. So now it has protected status, but in the intervening um, 12 years or so, 13 years, we've been able to study the chimpanzee populations there and habituate communities so that we could document their behaviors in more detail. And that's been one of the most effective ways to lobby for their conservation, is to know the apes and their behavior. Hmm. Yeah, and so can you give us some insights into what, like maybe compare and contrast the things that you've discovered at Gulago versus some of the longer-term field studies of chimpanzees? That's a good question. I mean, we went in there knowing that there were probably going to be some unique facets of the behavior of chimpanzees in Central Africa because there had been long-term study sites in East Africa that gave us the prototypical chimpanzee, if you will, and then you go to West Africa and that totally changes with Christoph and uh, Tetsuro's work um, showing us that chimpanzees do different things in different forests and also have unique cultures that are socially transmitted. So we were keeping our fingers crossed, hoping we could you know, find some things that might help us to identify these chimps as unique. And sure enough, after having been there a certain amount of time, we discovered that they had unique tool traditions and that these are relatively complex compared to what we'd seen in the animal kingdom before. So people like Bill McGrew had seen chimps use multiple tools of different types in serial order, but it was a case of a habituant, a rehabilitant chimp, sorry. Um, and so this individual had had some experience in a sanctuary and wasn't in a natural setting. So it was rare otherwise. There were some one-off cases um, from different sites, but in the Gulago Triangle, we see it on a regular basis. And we see tool sets used in different contexts. So they're not just using them to gather termites, they're also using them to gather ants and to harvest honey. So it's much more prevalent and would be at a customary level in the Gulago Triangle. So part of the complexity is, is just about that, using different tools successively to complete one task. But then there was also mention of, say, an individual tool, so the brushes that you're talking about in termite oh, fishing. You're so good. You're studious. <laughs> <laughs> Learned about the brush tip tools. We've gotten our message out. Um, no, you're exactly right. And that was something that... We went in knowing that there were frayed ends to tools that had been described in the literature and some of the early work uh, by Suzuki and the Indoki Forest in documenting the material culture uh, led us to wonder how these brushes were made. And so through camera trapping, we were actually able to see the chimps manufacture the brushes. And we found that with the herb tools in particular, they would gather an herb stem, approach the termite nest, and before they ever contacted the nest, they would modify it into a brush, just one end. It's always one side rather than uh, both sides of the tool. And then they use that brush end. Uh, they actually have to, um, they actually have to uh, be able to insert it into the mound. So they have to arrange the brush fibers, which takes an extra step. But they thread it into the mound and then they extract termites. And we found that this tool is more efficient than a tool that's unmodified. So how do you find that? 
That's you a good do an question. Experiment? <laughs> That's right. We did. We did an experiment. Um, the chimps actually use the brush tip tools consistently. And so we didn't have a subset of chimps that didn't. So we couldn't look at the chimp data directly and say, mm-hmm. are the individuals that use a brush more efficient than those that don't? Um, so we work with a group of people, a local group of people, semi-nomad forest forager people, the Bob and Jelly tribe. And um, these folks are out in the forest with us on a daily basis. So we said, hey, guys, would you mind testing this out? So half of you guys get brushes and half, you know, don't. And then we switched it up and we looked at their termite fishing efficiency. And importantly, we found that without a brush, you can still get termites. You just don't get as many and you're not as successful. If you modify the brush, you can be up to 10 times more efficient. So the chimps figured it out. Some brilliant chimp a long time ago had an innovation and it caught on because we see that now pretty much all the chimps do that. And it's not being used at other sites? Or is it, what's the verdict there? That's a good question. I mean, in Central Africa, as I mentioned, we really didn't know much about chimpanzees and we don't have long-term study sites like Gombe and Boso. Um, Gulago is the longest running field site with the most habituated ape populations. We do know that there are brush tip tools in other regions in Central Africa. Mm-hmm. So, and there's the same termites. So okay. it's likely that they're making the same modification. And that's something that's really interesting to us. How do they maintain these types of traditions over larger spatial scales? You know, right. over communities of individuals. We're not talking just five or ten communities, we're talking hundreds. This behavior possibly spans Republic of Congo, Gabon, Cameroon. So there's a lot of work to be done on how these are maintained over time, if it's the same behavior even. Um, But it could also be ecologically driven. I mean, that's fair enough. It could be a response to the termites. That doesn't rule out the fact that there's social transmission of the information. Right. Another side of that, so going from the wider perspective to, let's say, within group perspective, uh, if I recall correctly, there's a distinction clearly between using tools and making tools. Yeah. And if I recall, not all of the individuals are seen doing the making. We do see everyone that is termite fishing has made tools, you know, individuals that are proficient. Now the kids, they don't start out making tools, they typically borrow one from their mother. And so they'll, they'll ask for a tool, they'll request it, and their mother will typically comply by sharing the tool. Now we don't see everyone making the other types of tools, like puncturing tools or perforating tools. Those are used to open the termite nests. Um, the perforators are actually relatively rare. And thus far, our impression is that it's within certain families. They seem to do this behavior more. They use a little twig um, to open up the exit hole that a, a termite has created, but sealed closed with some soil. So it's not too manual, um, too physically demanding. It just takes any old twig that's in the area. The puncturing tool, which is the tool that you use to open a subterranean nest, is much more specific. You have to have a particular type of tree species, and you modify it by taking off the, the branches and things like this. But you also have to be of a certain size and strength to push it into the ground to create a tunnel into the soil. And we don't see kids that are infant and juvenile physically able to do that. They'll try, (laughs) but they don't succeed. So they don't make their tools. Um, And we will see that um, females will sometimes borrow the puncturing tunnel that's been made by a male. So maybe they're parasitizing off of the male's strength. That's a good question though. But we still haven't seen everyone for long enough to know what their knowledge is. Of course, of course. It's always the absence doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So. Exactly. No, right. That's where we're at. I want to step in with a methods question. Of course. Now, you are famous for using camera traps. <laughs> and that's kind of a relatively new uh, advance in field uh, 
primatology, and it kind of complements the fact that you have a relatively new site. So could you talk about your methods with the camera traps? It was a desperate measure. <laughs> no, no, I mean, we're outnumbered by chimps, seriously. Uh -huh. You go to this forest, and it's a situation where just in the Gulogo Triangle, which is a few hundred square kilometers, we estimate there's over 500 chimps. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just having a couple researchers there, there's no way we could keep track of them. And we'd read the papers of Bill McGrew where he made a hide of vegetation and would wait, and we're like, we don't have time for that. <laughs> we need technology to help us. And we were fortunate to know an electrical engineer um, who was in Congo uh, for a period, and we explained to him our situation, and he said passive infrared sensor would do the trick. And so we actually made one at the site. We had some uh, camera trapping materials, and people were skeptical because though they have been used to survey um, carnivores and other animals to census diversity, they hadn't been applied to study ape behavior. And, you know, people were right to an extent that the, the chimps would respond. One of the first things they do when they arrive at a termite nest is, oh, what's that? <laughs> really, I mean, we tried to camouflage them and it was, it was useless, it was futile. Um, the chimps march right up, they see it immediately. And what's interesting is they sometimes use tools on the camera trap, so they try to get into it and then they touch it. But we found that after a period of a couple months, they ignore them. Most everyone does. I mean, there's still chimps that come up and greet the camera for some reason. Um, but it's a really great situation, and we've been able to camera trap now for nine years at some locations. And we waterproof the cameras, we put desiccant in them to keep them dry, so there's actually cameras that have lived in the forest that long wow. and been able to continue to stand vigilant at a termite nest 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I don't want to do that. that <laughs> we so can't cool. pay someone to do that. And it's really good data because you also get long-term trends, and we've had kids that are born and show up on a camera trap, you know, within the first weeks, and we now see them termite fishing. So it's a it's a great data set. What have you been able to uncover using that versus uh, typical observation? It really enabled us to uncover the details of the tool using behavior without having to compromise the health of the individuals. I mean, we try not to be within a distance that could enable you to transmit a respiratory disease, so that's six meters. And some of these insights you want to just be closer. And the camera traps we can put within a few feet of the nest, and so that's been an advantage to get a really clear, unobstructed, it's almost like it's mounted on a tripod, uh, view of their behavior. and it's all videotaped mm -hmm. so we can go over it again and again and again so it's not like you're standing there with your notepad and you know taking focals yeah. which is very powerful data but it, it's not the same as video so we've been able to go through and literally code every element of their tool using behavior and we can compare that with other individuals to see if there's variance so how kids are learning from their mothers are they learning specific techniques from their mothers and things we can go back and look at laterality as I mentioned we can look at one individual in the frame uh, and then go back and look at all the others to see you know, how the kids are learning, how the mothers are facilitating. We haven't even started to get through that data, so there's a, there's a lot there in addition to what we've already published. All right, well that's a good lead into a final question, which is you have a lot of data from, you have so much data from this new method of camera traps, and our typical question that we ask is, what's next? So beyond looking at the data you already have, what's next for your method of camera traps and what's next for your field site and for you? You know, we are just in our infancy as a field site. Um, mm -hmm. 
So the first 10 years, you're habituating a lot, and we're also trying to work in multiple communities. So now we're really getting a window into their lives Mm -hmm. and the social drama that's unfolding every day. So being able to document these types of uh, relationships between males, between females, between males and females, is going to be one of the next steps we want to take to compare to other sites. We can't do that with the camera trapping. We use the camera trapping for a lot of different things, and we'll continue uh, to put them out. Um, There's almost 50 of them in the forest now. So we'll be able to monitor individuals over years, we hope. But expanding our direct observations and watching those individuals, we also just started habituating gorillas. So we're two years into that. We want to look at the overlap with other primates, not just gorillas, but there are 10 diurnal primate species in these forests. So how do they interact with mangabees? Why aren't they hunting the red colobus? These types of things are, are really important questions. But I cannot leave without mentioning the conservation importance. I mean, that's just so critical. So we allocate at least half of our time to trying to address the threats to great apes outside of our region now that we're a protected area, but before it was also where we are. So logging, a lot of these forests are gazetted for logging and we're trying to develop ways to reduce the impact of logging on apes so they can survive because it would give them a much better chance in this region where we still have a lot of apes compared to West Africa, which is so fragmented, and East Africa, uh, where we have relatively small populations. We also have the threat of disease, emerging disease. We're about 200 kilometers away from areas where Ebola has emerged repeatedly. So we're constantly vigilant and also trying to lend our ape expertise to interpreting what's happening in the hot zone to know what's, you know, are these normal chimpanzee populations or is it really, you know, something that's been affected? Also looking at the bushmeat trade. This is huge uh, in Central Africa, trying to mitigate the threats and address those things. So we have apes for the long term in the region. um, And there's a lot to be done. There needs to be other field sites in the region. Lots more students need to go out there and get their PhDs. So I think we got a lot of work ahead, to tell you the truth. Okay. Well, we look forward to seeing that come out yeah. in the future. Thanks and so much. And all the best. Yeah, Thanks. Good luck. Appreciate that. Thanks for joining. Thanks so much. You're welcome. You have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the primatecast.